Nate and Matt, Nate and Matt, the, the guitar players, told me they'd give me, what was it $20 if I said it in my sermon? I think it was. <laughs> no. <laughs> I worked it in. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. More seriously, I do have one chance, and I am incredibly grateful for this. Oh, I can't say that word, can I? I'm amazingly grateful for this opportunity to, to stand before you. And I'm, I'm really humbled, and, and I pray that it goes well, and you'll listen to what I have to say, and hope it is the right thing to say, but if not, well, oh well. Um, I thought about, you know, this is my senior year, I'm graduating, I'm done with college in a week. I'm going to be totally done, I'm going to be gone from this place. And I thought about that a lot, I've been thinking about that a lot, me and my roommates have been talking about it a lot, and it's kind of scary. And I thought about, I also work at a camp in the summer, and I thought, well, what's it like when people leave a Christian bubble, in a sense? And for those of you who work at a camp, you know that there are kids, when they come up there for a week at camp, and they have an incredible week, their life has changed, they, um, they turn their lives to God, and, they, and they're, they're on this emotional high, but when they leave, many times they fall, and they fall back into their old ways. And for those of you who work at camp or have worked with kids in any way, you know that's true. And like Dave was talking about on Monday... That's even true of students that leave here. And I started thinking about that a lot. I mean, what, what is it? What is the reason when we leave this place or we leave our Christian support system that we fall and we go back to our old ways? I thought of the Statue of Liberty. This is kind of a corny illustration, but it, it works. Remember the Statue of Liberty? I don't know how many years ago it was when it was getting a facelift. There was... There's millions of dollars worth of scaffolding all the way up the face. Millions of dollars spent to work on the exterior of her face and of her body so she'd stand. I mean, they spent hundreds of dollars. And I thought, you know, that's what we do here. That's what I do a lot. I spend, I've spent the last three years, a lot of times it's just been, I'm going to build up this external scaffolding so I will look good on the outside. And that you will see me as a Christian or as a spiritual guy, but I'm just doing the outside. And that's what scares me. That's what scared me as I was thinking about this. And I think that's a real danger here because it's easy. It's easy to be a Christian here. We go to chapel. We go to church. We hear the Bible exposited three times a week plus church. We go to classes where we hear more Bible, and it's easy. We know what we should do. We know how to look. We know how to dress. We know how to what a Christian looks like, and it's really simple. But like the Statue of Liberty... If our spirituality is based just on this external, then we have no heart. On the inside, we're just hollow. And, and God says that that's not the way it should be. And what I want to look at today, if you'll take your Bibles, is Matthew chapter 22. There's a group in the New Testament, who you all know, who did this, who lived this life of an external system of spirituality. The, the Pharisees. For their names, they they had, they defined God's laws from Ten Commandments to 613 is what I count. There's probably more, but they defined their spirituality, what they should do, so fine that no matter which situation arose, they would look right. They would be doing the right thing. And in this passage right here, Matthew 22, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're trying to trap him because here's a man who is truly living what they say they are living on the outside. There he's living on the inside. Now they're trying to trap him. And in verse 34 and 35, they ask him a question. Verse 34 and following, if you'll read there with me. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
I really struggle. I wondered why they asked that question. I mean, why would they want to ask that question? I came up with two reasons, and there's probably more, and I could be totally wrong, but there's two reasons, I think, why they asked that question. Jesus, one, they're trying to trap him, and we know that. They're either trying to show that if they could show that he wasn't following the greatest commandment, then they would have him. If Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, say following the Sabbath, they could say, you know, you're not doing that in their minds that he wasn't, and then they'd have him. Either that or they're trying to show Jesus that they were following the greatest commandment. If Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, you do this and you're doing everything right. If they were doing that, then they knew that Jesus couldn't condemn them, which he did in Luke, Luke 22, I think it is. He really condemned them, the woes to the Pharisees. Um, but what does Jesus say? They said, which is a great commandment? They thought they were going to trap him or they thought they were going to get him to say, look how good they were. And Jesus says in verse 37, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. These are real familiar verses to us. We all hear it a lot. I just think it's a good reminder to us of what we should do. And we're in the system here of external Christianity where the potential for it is there. We can do it. But what Jesus says is, No, you need to love me. He says on verse 38, this is a great and foremost commandment. The great and foremost. This is this commandment upon which every other command is subsequent, dependent, and secondary. If this love for God is not present in what we do, then Jesus says we're not doing it the right things at all. If we're going to church and going to chapel and hearing all this stuff and we're doing it for other reasons than loving God, and Jesus says that that's not doing the right things at all. You're missing the entire point of any commandment. If love of God is not present, then you've lost it. You've lost what, what it all is about. What the whole Bible is about is loving God. He says, they come down to this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If loving God is so important, then why don't we do it? I, I thought about this in my own life. Why don't I do it? Why is it so hard to love God? Why is it, it, at least it is for me, maybe it's not for you, but it's extremely tough for me to love God. It's extremely tough to look at what I do and say, I did that out of pure love for God. And most of the time that's not true. And the reason for that is that a lot of times I base my Christianity on what I do. Not, not from the inside, but from the outside. And if, if that is true, if I'm based on the outside, then it doesn't matter if I love God. Because to you, I'm doing the right thing, and in my heart, that's all that matters. And that's what frightens me. God wants us to surrender our whole lives to Him. That's what this word implies, the agape love. We've all heard about it. Agape love, a true, committed, sacrificial love. It's a great and foremost commandment. Um, As I thought about this, reasons why we don't love God, I, I just came up with a few... And these are just true in my own life. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. They're just true that I have looked in my own life and reasons why I don't love God. First of all, as I've already said, if our Christianity is entirely based on what we do, then we don't need to love God, as I've stated. Second, we are unwilling to surrender some areas of our lives. This is really hard, I think, for men especially. Because we don't want to admit that we're not in control of every area of our life. If there's something we're holding on to from God, God wants everything. He says, you give me control, complete control of every area of your life. 
Okay, yeah, God. Except for this. I want to hold on to this because I want to be in control. Because that's scary. It's scary to give up control of our lives. It's scary to give up control of maybe our, our Christianity, our faith. It's, we want to do it. We, we think we can earn it. And that's what not what the Gospel is about. The Gospel is about Jesus doing it all. And that's what we need to do. We need to be willing to surrender. To surrender everything. I would ask you to look in your own life. Is there something you're holding on to that you not, do not want God to have? It can be um, external things such as you know materialistic things. You know, God, I, I, I know that you love me and all, but you know I don't want to give up this thing. I, I, I just bought a surfboard <laughs> just recently. And it would be really hard for me to give that up. I spent a lot of money. I really like to surf. But if God asks me to, if God calls me to a place where there's no surfing, I'm going to have to give it up. That's going to be really hard. But that's what He wants me to do. He wants me to give up surfing. I hope not, but <laughs> He may. Okay, third. Third reason why we do not love God. This is also true in my life. We do not recognize our gifts as gifts. As a student here, I've done pretty well in my, in my years here. Um, and it's very hard for me to get a good grade and to think that I have earned it. It's really, it's really easy for me, on second thought, to, to do that. Say, I have earned this grade. I did it all. And I say to God, you know, look at look at this, God. I'm a, at the Master's College. I'm getting, I'm on the President's List at the Master's College. I did it. And he's saying, no, I gave you this gift. I gave you a gift in scholastic stuff. You didn't do anything. I gave you this gift. He's calling me to say, hey, God, I'm going to take this gift you gave me and I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to learn all I can about you so I can praise you better and love you better. Not that I can, not so I can uh, be puffed up and go up here and, and shake MacArthur's hand and get that little president's list thing and put it in a notebook or whatever. He wants me to give it up. He wants me to use his gifts as gifts, not as something I have earned. I think we do that a lot. I know I do. Because they're gifts and we say, no, I earned it. Uh, most importantly, this is the final one reason why we don't love God. We do not take time to daily cultivate our relationship with Him. It's really easy when we get so busy in what we're doing here at the college to forget God. This is true at camp as well. You get so busy, you're doing all the good things, you're doing all the right things, we forget our Creator. We forget our Savior. When we're not spending time daily with Him, then we're not loving Him. That's, that's the only way a relationship can grow, is if we daily spend time with Him. That's true in any relationship. A relationship cannot grow if we only spend you know, once a week in true communication with Him. I don't know about you, but a lot of times for me, my, my quiet times consist of reading a chapter. I'll just open, oh, this looks like a good chapter. I'll read that. God, thanks for what you said here. Um, i got to go to school. Or i got to go study. I'll talk to you later. And that's it. And I'm done for the day. And that's sad. God wants us to pray at all times with Him. That's why He saved us so we can be in a relationship with Him. Not, that we, not so we can look good to the world or, or look good to those around us, but that we can spend time with Him. So how do we begin to love God? I don't know. I don't have the answers. I was talking to my sister the other night and she asked me that same question. She said she wanted a magic wand to wave over her life to make everything perfect. And I said, well, you can do this. this. No, I'm just kidding. I said, I don't know. <laughs> Um, but I thought of some stuff. I thought of some stuff that I need to do, and I'll just share them with you. Um, 
loving God involves a total and complete surrender to Him, as I've stated. That's what the word agape has to do, a total and complete surrender. That we're giving up, we're going to look upon God as more important than ourselves, more important than what we do, more important than all our external structures, and that it's God. You're our focus, God. A total and complete surrender. That's hard. It's hard for all of us to do. But that's what He wants, and that's what it takes. Secondly, I thought that, you know, love is a choice here. This is not an emotional response that God has for us. He doesn't want us to, to necessarily feel loving towards Him all the time. He wants our commitment. He wants us to choose every day to be committed to Him in all that we do. Not just to feel good, not just a, a response to what He has done, but to choose to, to love Him. It's not an emotion, it's a commandment. God will not command us to do something that we cannot do. He commands us to love Him. It's, our feelings are going to change. Our feelings we cannot hold on to. They will change daily. But a commitment will last forever. And it is this commitment that will hold up once I leave this place, once I leave these safe walls of the Master's College, once I leave camp and go out into the real world. That's what's going to hold up. That's what's going to be important is my commitment to Him. Not what I do. Not how I look. But how it is from the heart. Third, third way that I thought of to, to love God. It's continuous. The word, the Greek word here involves a continuous action. It's nothing we do one time, okay, God, I'm committed to you. I love you. I surrender to you. It's a daily, continuous, hourly, minute by minute, second by second thing. He wants us daily to come before Him and say, God, I've been holding on to something. I'm going to give this to you. God, I've been holding on to this sin. I want to keep doing it but I know I shouldn't, and I know I can't, so I'm going to give that to you. Every day and every minute, that's what He wants. That sounds impossible to me, but that's what He wants. That's what He calls us to do. It's to continually love Him, continually surrender to Him. Okay, the fourth way I thought of to love God is to understand who He is. We need to understand who God If we truly understand who God is, we will love Him. If we understand what He has done for us, we'll love Him. But when you think about about the story of Christmas, which is coming up, it's it's always incredible to me. Uh, there's that word again. It's always amazing to me that that God, who's the all-powerful Creator of this world, Creator of me, He created me, created all we see, and I have said, God, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I want you. I don't even believe you. I'm going to rebel against everything you have said. That he would, he would empty himself and become a man. He would come to earth just because, not anything I've done, but just because he loves me and that he wants to enter a relationship with me. That's just amazing to me. That always just, I just can't describe it. I mean, I don't think about it enough. But God loves me. God became a man and then he died. And that's incredible in itself. How can God die? an eternal, infinite God subjected Himself to death for me. It's amazing. When we understand that God is love and that God loves us, it demands a response. How can we do anything but love Him? But the, our sin gets in the way. We don't think of how God loves us. We want to hold on and think how we can earn His love in some way or how we can, can earn what we deserve or get what we deserve from Him. 
but He loves us. And if we think about that daily, I think it will generate a response in our lives, a loving response from the heart. Not from what we do, not that we'll be doing the right things, but it'll be from the heart. Also, the next one, love of God is personal and eternal, not primarily external. Verse 37 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Those are all internal things. He's not saying, to love me means to do the right things. He's saying to love me comes from within you, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's pretty all-encompassing. Um, he wants it from the inside, not from, not just a response to do the right things, but a love for Him from the inside. And finally, the last one on how we can begin to love God is, is it must be complete. Again, all your soul all your heart, all your mind. Everything in us must love God or we're doing the wrong thing. If we're not completely surrendered to Him with our hearts, with our minds, and with our entire souls, and our entire, our entire being, then we're doing the right things. It doesn't matter what we're, and we're doing the wrong thing. We could be doing all the right things in the world. We could have a ministry. We could be leading people to Christ. We can be doing all the right things. But if our entire hearts, our entire minds, and our entire souls are not loving Him, then Jesus says it's worthless, basically. Why even bother? Not going to make any money at it. Love me. Don't worry about what you're doing. Worry about your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. So this is the first and greatest commandment, the great and foremost commandment. Apart from this, nothing else matters. Loving God is the first primary step in developing true, authentic Christianity that will stand no matter what the circumstances. No matter what happens, if what we do is motivated by love for God, then we will not, ceasing doing, we will not cease doing the correct thing. That's what's important. Not doing them all. Not building up like the Statue of Liberty, these external things. Not working on our exterior and how we can look to others and how we can look to ourselves but love from God from the heart, from the mind, and from the soul. That's the, that's the primary step. That's the what's most important. But then Jesus said in verse 39, He said there's a second thing too. He said the second command, or, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said the second command is like the first one. It's not like it in the sense that this is what's most important. It's like it in the sense that if you are not doing the second one, then the first one is not true in your life either. A lot of people love their neighbors. If they're not loving God, they're not doing the. They're not. It's not true love, and they're not doing the right thing. The second is like it. It's like it in the sense that most, both of them must be present. It's like in the sense that if we are truly loving God, we're going to love our neighbors. That's an outflow of it. If we're not loving our neighbors, then we're not truly loving God. It is not the primary, but if love for our neighbor is not present in what we do, then we are not truly fulfilling the first commandment again. Well, who is our neighbor? Uh, I thought about that. Who is our neighbor? I, something I read said our neighbor is merely anyone that comes into our sphere of influence, if you will, our sphere of, of friends, our sphere of associates. All of us, these are our neighbors. Look around you. 
God says, love, love your neighbor. Everyone in here, we should be loving from our hearts and in our actions. And that's really hard and that's really scary. So our neighbor is just anyone that comes into our lives. Anyone that God sends may not be someone we like. We might have a hard time with them, but he says, no, you need to love them. So what does it mean to love our neighbor? Again, I thought of some things that are, that are not true in my own life that I wish were. Things that I struggle with the most with loving others. And things that, this is not, again, an exhaustive list, but these are things that I struggle with and I think other people struggle with as well. And if not, then, well, you still have to listen to me. Um, what should our, our love look like? Well, primarily it should look like how Christ loved us. And this, these are things that Christ did, and these are, this is how Christ loved, and these are things that I wish were true in my own life. First of all, our relationships, our commitments to relationships, our love for others should not be primarily what we can get, but what we can give. Jesus in, in Philippians 2 talks about how he gave up his life. He gave up, um, he looked to others as more important than himself. And Tim in Sermon Prep the other day gave a great message on that. And it was really true. I thought about that a lot. Jesus, the God, the creator of the universe, looked on us as more important than himself. And that's what we should be doing with others, too. But so many times it's not true. So many times we look to people for what we can get out of the relationship, what we can get from them, whether it be, I don't know, popularity or or things or whatever it is, even if it's just the fact that we have someone there that we can talk to. A lot of times we don't want to talk to them just because we want to see what they're struggling with. We want to talk to them because we want their love. We're not concerned with how we love them. We just want others to love us. Jesus says, no, love Think of them as more important than yourself. That's really tough to do. How can we think of others as more important? Everything that we do should be motivated by loving others as more important than ourselves. That's the first one. Secondly, our, our relationships must not but excuse me, our relationships must not be dependent upon how we are treated. A lot of times I think our love is dependent upon how you're going to treat me. I'm going to love you if you're going to love me. If you, got, you must take the initiative. You must do it first. And if you don't, then I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And even I may, I may slander you. I may talk bad about you. I may pay back evil for evil, like Rob talked about. But we should love no matter what, how we're treated. We're always going to be treated bad. People are always going to let us down. Jesus says, that doesn't matter. Depend on your love and strength for me, then go out and love them. <coughs> Excuse me. Our relationships must not be dependent upon how we're treated by others. That's really tough to do as well. That's tough in my life. I struggle with that every day. Because when someone does something wrong, my first response is, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to show them that, like Rob was talking about, that what they did was wrong, no matter what it is. I'm going to show them, and then I'm going to feel better because I did that. He says, no, think of them as more important than you. Don't don't let your love be dependent upon how they treat you. Let it come from the heart and out of your love for God and a commitment to them to do, their, to do what is best for them. The third one, and this is tough also, this relates back to 
the previous one is that we must truly forgive. When someone does something to me and, I, and it makes me upset, even if they ask my forgiveness, a lot of times I want to hold on to it and say, okay, I'll forgive you. But I'm still holding on. I'm still counting that against them. And for the, I'm just waiting for the next time they do it again so I can say, look, you did it again. You don't like me at all, do you? And then I, then I don't have any reason to be in a relationship with them. If I can show them that they don't like me, then hey, then my, my responsibility in this relationship is in it. I've done all I can. I rationalize that. You know, I've done everything. Jesus says, no, forgive them. Um, because if your brother comes to you and repents seven times in one day, forgive him. Forgive him truly. Forgive him completely. And forget about it. I mean, he's done this wrong. He admits he is wrong. Forgive. I think it's important also to forgive even before they ask for our repentance. To know that, that we are all fallen. We have all hurted others. <coughs> when we get hurt, it's merely a result of our fallenness. And that that's tragic. But Jesus died for that person and loves that person as much as He loves you. And for us to say that I'm not going to love you, I'm not going to forgive you, is to say that we're better than God. Is to say that, you know, God can forgive you, but I can't. I'm going to hold on to this. Dewey talks about how bitterness is one of the hot topics in youth today. How that their bitterness is, when he talks to youth groups, is one of the things that they hold on to the most. And I think that's really true. It's really hard to forgive because we've been hurt. It's touched our nerves. It's touched our hearts. And we want to, we want to hold on to that and hold on to our pain as long as we can. Because then, our, again, our responsibility in that relationship is ended. Christ says, no, forgive them. Forgive them up to seven times in one day, even, for the same thing. That's really hard to do. Another way, and this is extremely tough for me. I hate doing this, but we must be willing to confront. Uh, confront's a bad word. We must be willing to, to confront sin or see sin and point sin out. This has always been a struggle for me. At camp, I'm a director, and that's my job, is to confront areas where things are wrong and point them out. I even had to fire a couple people this summer, and I hated it. I hated to confront, confront them. But I knew it was the right thing to do. <coughs> and if I don't confront it, then that's just as wrong as not confronting it. That's even more wrong, I think. If your neighbor sins against you or sins in any way, and you do not confront him, then I think his sin, while he will have to be responsible for that himself, if you know that it's true and you're not confronting him, then I think we're held responsible also. Not necessarily for his sin, necessarily, but for our lack of response to that sin. But how hard is it to confront people? It's so much easier to look over it, to look over the sin and say, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. I do that all the time myself. But if we truly love him, we know that that sin is hurting his relationship with God. And we will want to change that. We want to get him back in a right relationship with God. Another danger with confrontation is we come up, approach it with pride and say, you know, look, you, you've sinned. You're a sinner. I can't believe you did that. I would never do that. Well, that's so wrong, too. I mean, if we come up with pride, then we're doing it totally wrong. In Galatians 6, 1 to 3, it says, If your brother sins, go and reprove it. No, that's not it. I better read it. Trespass, you who are spiritual, that's anyone who is a Christian basically, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, 
each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. We need to confront people in a spirit of gentleness, not saying that we're better than you, that we would never do that, that you, I can't believe you did that, you sinner, you need to repent. But that, man, I could fall into that same thing too, and I don't want to. And if you were my friend, I would want you to confront me in that also. I'm going to come to you and say, you know, my friend, I, this is what I've seen in your life. We hear this all the time at the Master's College. It's the Master's distinctive. We need to confront. But it's so hard to do, isn't it? Or if we do do it, it's for little minor things. You know, we know we need to confront. Okay, you know, you're wearing blue jeans. I'm going to confront you on that. I can't believe you're wearing blue jeans. I mean, our dress code is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing the dress code. But what I'm saying is that we do that so we can we can say we confront it, we can feel good about doing the right thing, and without looking past that, without looking past what they look or how they what they're doing, without getting to their heart, and truly desiring them to come back to Christ. I mean, dress code is a small thing, and our confrontation of that may just be out of a, a spirit of pride and out of wanting them, you know, saying go back and change or whatever it is, not because of we want to enforce a dress code or we think it's a spiritual issue, but because we're doing that out of pride. But I think we need to be confronted in all areas. And that's, I don't know, that's something I really struggle with. And I'm standing before you to ask you to hold me accountable to that. And if I know something's going on, I hope that I will have the strength and the courage to confront that. And if you see something in my life, it's my prayer that you will confront that in me also. All right, let's move on. Um, and here's another thing I really struggle with. We must watch what we say, I think. I worked at Iscaria for two years. And this has a point, so just bear with me. I was there for two years, and I really saw there how stupid people can be. And I don't know if any of you ski, but I, I always worked on the beginner lift for some reason. I'm just going to show you something that one guy did real quick. I'm standing there, and we had these old chairs that had a center pole, which many skiers know that those are unheard of anymore. So, But everyone comes, they ski up, they stand on the thing, they look to the outside. And I always ask them, no, sir, turn around, or ma'am, turn around. Look to the inside. I told us to this guy, he's looking to the outside. Sir, turn to the inside. Looks at me, turns back. Doesn't even move, just moves his head. Sir, you need to turn around, look to the inside. Looks at me like I was crazy. I said, sir, there's a center pole chair, you need to turn around. What? You need to turn around. So he's standing here. Chairs come behind him. He turns around. <laughs> Chair comes and it takes him out. Takes him up. To, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I got cynical there. I got real. This happened. This was a daily occurrence. That was an extreme occurrence. But I couldn't believe how stupid people were. And the result, the result. For those of you that that knew me, my freshman, sophomore, and even last year, I'm sad to admit, knew how sarcastic I was. I know my roommates can attest to that. I know other people can too, but I was really cynical. I was sarcastic. Someone would say something, I would point out how stupid they were. Not in direct terms. I'd just use sarcasm and say, ah. Or I'd repeat it. Someone said something stupid, I'd just repeat it to them just to show how stupid they were. <laughs> but that is so wrong. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. So that every word that proceeds from our mouth should edify. That is not anywhere near true in my life. I, I love to kid around. I love to, to make fun of people. I love to, 
you know, you know how it is. Especially you in the dorms, you know how it is. We always, I don't know about girls, but guys, we always do. We always make fun of each other. We say, ah, you idiot. But it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That scares me. Matthew twelve thirty six says that we will be held accountable for every careless word we say. Everything we say bad against our brethren, we're going to be held accountable for that. We're going to stand before Jesus and He's going to say, why did you say that? And what am I going to say? Because he was stupid. I don't know. And then he'll say, well, look at you. Look how stupid you are. And I'll say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth except for that which is useful for edification. It's good for edification. Um, we need to make relationships a priority. I think that's real important as well. Again, going back to my grades, a lot of times until really this year, I was into being here at school. Relationships, I didn't really care about those. I was into be getting good grades because I liked, I liked, to be honest with you, I liked to be noticed for it. I liked to come up here and receive the president's list. I liked getting a, the first year Greek award. And I spent all my time studying. And those of you that lived with me those first years knew that. I was always at my desk typing, studying, doing something. And I talked to my pastor last year about this. And I said, you know, I'm getting good grades, but it feels empty. This is what I thought I wanted. It feels empty. He says, well, how are your, your relationships? And I, said, I admitted to him they're not that good. I'm not loving my, my roommates like I should. And he says, I was the same way in college. He said, if I had to do all over again, I wouldn't get the same grades I got. But I would sure spend it with my roommates. I sure spend it with those people that God brought into my life. Because five years from now, no one's going to care what kind of grades you got. No one's going to care. It's not going to matter. So I think we need to make relationships a priority. <laughs> I'm not giving anyone an excuse. <laughs> I see all these people. All right. Hey, he said in chapel we don't have to study. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I think you should, I think study is important because it can bring us closer to God and give us a, a way to reach the world. But I also think the relationships are important, and I think they should be our priority. along with loving God. Finally, I just want to um, close this part with as far as loving others. I think we just need to tell each other. It's so hard for guys to say, you know, I love you. I don't know why that is. I want to read a story. And you sermon prep guys have already heard this, so bear with me. And It's a good story, so you can hear it again. It is called Love. And this is a true story about a kid, I think he's about eight or nine years old, um, I don't know where it's from or anything. I just got this at camp. It says, love, the most frequently used word in the English language. I wonder why it's so often when there seems to be so very... so. Let me start over. I wonder why it's so often used when there seems to be so very little of it left in the world. Maybe someday, like me, you'll learn the real meaning of love. I suppose the whole story started the day my brother was born. From the moment he was carried into the house, my life has been one big contest. You see, I was five when he was born and had always been the center of attention. Everyone spoiled me with candy and toys. It was always, how's my little Jason? I have a big surprise for you. After that, they take me to the circus and buy me everything in sight. So you can see that for somebody else to just come along and steal the spotlight was a terrible blow. Yes, the second he entered the house, I was thrown aside, and while he was smothered with oohs and ahs. 
It's understandable, though, he was a beautiful baby. Visiting relatives would often lean over his crib and he'd smile, gurgle, and kick his chubby little legs at him. I remember once when I was rocking him to sleep in his cradle. I gave it one mighty shove and he came tumbling out. He wasn't hurt, but I was punished. As Matthew grew up, matters became worse. He had this terrible habit of following me around wherever I went. It was always, can I come with you, Jason? No, so will you lay off, you little brat? He'd always start to cry. Then my mother would come running and I'd get in trouble. Same thing all the time. Wherever I went, Matthew went. All his little hints of love and affection just made me want to hate him more. Once I tried to tell my father how I felt about him. I guess my wording wasn't right. Matthew, or Dad, I hate Matthew. But before I could even finish my sentence, I got a slap in the mouth and an angry answer. Why, Jason, how dare you say such a thing about your brother who loves you? You go to your room right this minute. Well, that's how things were in our household. That is until two weeks ago. It was just a regular Saturday. I was bored to death and awful cranky. My homework wasn't done, but I was in no mood to do it. After lunch, my mother asked me to mail a letter for her. The mailbox was just two blocks away, and I had nothing to do, so I agreed. I was about to leave when Matthew, as usual, asked if he could go. I was too tired to argue, so I said okay. As we were walking, I began to feel better. It was a beautiful day, the air was cold, and the wind slapped my face until it really woke me up. Before I knew it, we were almost at the mailbox. Matthew, who was getting very bored because I hadn't spoken a word to him the whole way, suddenly grabbed the letter and yelled, Race to the mailbox. He darted out into the street, heading for the box on the other side. He never made it. It all happened so quickly that I didn't even have time to call out. The car suddenly swerved around the corner, heading right for Matthew. I opened my mouth to scream, but nothing came out. The next thing, next thing I knew, he was on the ground. Everything after that is just a blurry nightmare. I guess the man who hit him called an ambulance. I think I just froze in my place with my mouth open, waiting to scream. I suppose most people would have gone hysterical or cried, but I didn't. I didn't feel a thing, just empty, as if someone had cut a big hole in me. Empty, that's all. Finally, somehow, they got him to the hospital. I hate hospitals. They smell like death. They're so quiet. I was in the waiting room with my parents. After what seemed like a century, the doctor came out. One look on his face, and I knew. My parents rose as he walked toward us. They probably knew, too, but you could still see a tiny glimmer of hope in their eyes. I'm sorry, he said, looking down at his hands. I don't think he'll make it. He's got a one-in-a-million chance. Then I felt it. The thing called love. It came in a rush from way down deep after being hidden for all those years. Hard to believe, isn't it? I loved my brother and didn't know it for ten years. That night I asked to see him. Of course, at first they said no, but I was finally allowed a short visit. I tiptoed into his room, hoping he wouldn't be asleep. He wasn't. He was lying very still, staring at the ceiling. When he heard me come in, he turned and smiled weakly. Oh, he was so pale. Hi, Matthew. Hi, he said. I sat down by his bed and held his hand tightly. Jason, he asked. Yeah. Can I ask you something? Sure, go ahead. Jason, why did you come to see me? With tears streaming down my face, I answered, Because I love you, Matthew. For the first time in his life, he looked really happy. I mean, really happy. I leaned over and kissed him gently. I love you too, Jason. With a smile on his face, he died. Love, you sometimes never know you have it until you lose it. It's so hard to say, but I think it's so important. I don't think we should assume that others know we love them. I think we should tell them. My dad and came 400 miles to hear me preach today. Um, he's going home tomorrow. Something could happen. And he could be home, and he could die in a car accident on the way home. And 
And I may not have told him I love him enough. Well, I do, Dad. I love you. Um, let me just conclude here. If we seek to leave here and we want to stand up, then these are the things that we need to be present in our life. We need to have an internal love for God and an internal love for our neighbors. Let me, let me just close with these questions. Just some personal questions. You just think about these. These are things that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And these are just, think about your heart. Why did you come to Masters? I mean, did you come here because you knew there was a good school, you knew you were going to get a good education in the Bible? Or did you come because you wanted to know God more? That you wanted to seek God? You wanted to love Him more? Why do we go to church? Do we go to church because we know we have to sign in back there, over there, on Monday morning? And if we don't and we sign in no, then we're going to be liars. Or do we go because we want to worship God? Why do we even come to chapel? We know we go because we only have six misses and we're required to come. And most of us are up on that six. And if we don't come today, then we're going to be suspended. Or do we come because we want to know God and worship Him and hear more about Him? Why do we pray before meals? This one is always a big one. Why do we do that? I never used to pray before meals until I came here. I found it was a thing to do. So a lot of times I just prayed, oh, I better pray because they're going to be watching. Or do we pray because we're truly thankful for what He has given us? Even in the cafeteria. Do we thank God for that? <laughs> do you? It's a gift. He gave us that cafeteria. I don't know what He was thinking, but He did. Why do we even pray? That's the question I ask. Why do we pray? Do we pray because we know that our relationship should be growing? We probably should. Or because we love God? Why am I even standing before you today? Am I standing up here because I want to look in front of you or I want to have a good message? I want to, I want to get a good critique from you sermon prep guys because I know you're watching. Or am I standing out here because I love God and because I want to He's given me this opportunity to proclaim His Word. I'm afraid to leave here because I know that these things are not present in my life. I'm afraid that when I leave here in a couple of weeks that I'm not going to be around this Christian bubble in a, anymore and I will fall. So many times I go to God with my resume instead of my heart. I say, look God, here I am at the Master's College. I'm the President's List on the Master's College. Here's my work experience. I work at camp. My education, I'm on the President's List. I'm going to graduate with honors or whatever. You know, I'm, I work in a ministry. I've led people to the Lord. God, look at this. Are you seeing this? God looks right past it. He looks into my heart. And I'm afraid of what He says. He takes this and says, this is garbage. Where's your heart? I don't want your resume. I want your love. I don't want your duty, Greg. I want your devotion. I don't want your robotic obedience. I want your love. How's your heart? Are you loving God like you should? Are you loving your brethren and your sisters like you should? I think these are the things that we need to think about. I'm going to ask that you stand with me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for this time of year reminder that you came to earth and you came for us, for each one of us in here. Lord, I 
ask your forgiveness for myself that I do not love you like I should and I do not love my neighbors like I should. I pray that as I leave here and as other students begin to leave here and go out into the world that our Christianity may not be something we do but maybe something we are that comes out of a love for you. I just thank you for this word and for how you're working in my life. And I pray that as we go out today that we may just praise you for all you've done for us. And we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. I always wanted to say that.